Today's episode is brought to you by Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Hobbs Bonded Fibers has been making high quality batting for quilters since 1978. They manufacture all their own batting in Waco, Texas. And you can find out more about all of their batting and crafting products at www.hobbsbatting.com products. Be sure to stay tuned for a fun spot and a chance to win a collection of batting and crafting products later in this podcast. Thanks so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 151 of the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about making a career as an artist with my guest, Lisa Solomon. Lisa is a mixed media artist whose work has been exhibited and collected all over the world. She received her BA in art practice from UC Berkeley and her MFA from Mills College, and has been a professor in the Bay Area for more than 15 years. As a Hapa, her mother is Japanese and her father is Jewish Caucasian, she is profoundly interested in personal identity and all things chroma. Her work reflects this as well as an incredible love for textiles. She regularly uses craft materials and techniques in fine art contexts. Another important focus of hers is bridging the gaps between being creative, living creatively, and making a living as a creative. Lisa Solomon, welcome. Hey, Abby, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We were talking before we started recording about how we actually have met once in person way back when in New Hampshire at a gallery opening. Yeah, way back in the day at Artstream Studios. Shout out to Susan. Yeah, I know. That's right, at Artstream (laughs) Studios. And we... um, I bought a piece of your art, and we also did a swap of one of my birds for another piece of your art, which is hanging here in my studio. So I've got your presence right here next to me all the time. I love that. And it's lovely to um, have the chance to talk a little bit about you and your career. And um, it's been a nice long career, and you've got a new book out, so we're going to definitely talk about that as well. So let's back up and begin at the beginning. Um, and, and we talked a little in the um, introduction about your heritage and your parents. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, actually. So, But my parents parents met in Japan. My dad was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. And so he was teaching English in Japan. And they met very romantically by accident at a train station. Oh, wow. Okay. So your dad, um, your dad is American. And was your mother actually like not American? She was Japanese from Japan. Yeah, she was born and raised in Japan, the northern part of Japan, actually. Um, Sort of close, if people know the, obviously people will know the Fukushima disaster um, in that sort of region. Not exactly there, but but close to that. Okay. And where was your dad from in the U.S.? Uh, my dad was born in Detroit, 
Um, and then he moved to Los Angeles and then he went to UC Berkeley for college. Um, so I carried on the family tradition of going to Berkeley. Okay. Um, yeah. And then we grew up, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and my grandparents were very close by my dad's mom and dad were very close by. And my grandmother's actually a huge influence. She was an avid crocheter, knitter and embroiderer. And you can see her influence all over my work. Um, but then when I uh, was in junior high, my parents decided to move to Santa Barbara. So I ended up going to high school in Santa Barbara, which was very different um, than Los Angeles. In what way? Um, it was just less ethnically diverse. And um, like in LA, there weren't at the time, like it seems like there's a lot more mixed race kids now. But at the time in L.A., there weren't that many, but there were a lot of just different Asian populations and Latino populations. And it just seemed, you know, like a very diverse place in Santa Barbara. I think I was one of two or three mixed race kids in the school and people were a lot more racially segregated in Santa Barbara than they were in Los Angeles. And that's um, especially when you're a teenager and, you know, in high school, that's like your formative year. So was that hard? Um, yeah, it was really challenging. Also, I um, didn't play sports. And a lot of Santa Barbara kids grew up playing volleyball or soccer or softball or were really into sports and I wasn't. Um, and then there also was kind of a big income disparity. There's a lot of wealthy families um, and so kids were getting brand new cars for their 16th birthday. <laughs> I mean, you know, we definitely, fortunately, had plenty, you know, enough money. We were very middle class. And I ended up working and getting my own car when I turned 16, not brand new, um, very used. But, you know, but there was definitely, it, it's, it felt very disorienting to go to a school where there were brand new BMWs in the parking lot that belonged to 17-year-olds. Right. Right. What made your parents um, move there? Um, I, I think it was mostly when I was growing up in L.A., there was a lot of sort of gang violence and a lot of um, stuff kind of developing. And there happened to be a shooting in an area where I hung out um, when I was in junior high. And I think that fueled with the fact that they were just sick of traffic um, and kind of the density of Los Angeles and they wanted to live like a slower paced life and, um, you know, just kind of get out of the city is what motivated them to move. Okay. Um, and so what did your parents do for work? Did your dad continue to be a teacher or when he came back to the U S from Japan, did he do something different? And what, what, what did your mom do? Yeah. So my dad actually was a psychologist, um, practicing clinical psychologist when I was in LA, he was in private practice. And then, um, when we moved to Santa Barbara, this is actually part of the motivation. Um, I don't remember actually the timing, like if he got the job and that helped him decide to move or if he decided to move and then got the job. Um, you know, when you're in high school, you don't really pay attention to your parents' lives. <laughs> true, so, true, true. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the order of events. So sorry, dad, if you're listening, then I don't remember this, but, um, he worked for um, the county of Santa Barbara helping um, with kids in juvenile detention and sort of families and um, so still as a psychologist but not in private practice. And then my mom is actually kind of a renaissance woman, jack of all trades. 
Um, when I was really, really, really little, she was a tour guide for Japanese tourists coming to Los Angeles. So I don't know if she can even tell you how many times she's been to Disneyland. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then she did a bunch of things. Like uh, she ran a seed business with my grandmother for a little bit. Um, she learned how to transcribe Braille. Um, and so she was typing books for students um, through Santa Monica City College. And then in Santa Barbara, she ended up working for um, Santa Barbara City College in both their financial aid and I can't remember the other department she was in. Okay. Um, but she worked there until uh, they both retired and then they moved up here. I live in Oakland and they moved up here because I'm an only kid and I finally had my daughter and that was their only grandkid. And so they moved up. <laughs> Got it. Right. Yeah. To be doting grandparents. Exactly, which they are. They're wonderful oh, at it. That's wonderful. Yeah. So did you always know that you wanted to be an artist? Were you, and it sounds like your father's mother was very creative and was really into textiles and probably taught you how to do a lot of those different things when you were young. But, yeah. um, but you know, it's one thing to do those things as a kid, as a hobby. Did you always know, I mean, you didn't play sports, but um, that you wanted to be a maker and an artist when you were a teenager, when you were growing up? You know, I had an inkling, but I didn't really, like, it wasn't a solid thing in my mind. It wasn't like, I'm going to grow up and be an artist. I mean, when I was really little, like, this is totally silly, but like, I wanted to be a banker because I liked how the tellers at the bank stamped things. Like, I just thought <laughs> stamping paper was the coolest stamping. thing Stamping, yes, right. Yeah. Not at all about the money and like, no, it was, <laughs> it was about, about the stamping process. the paper. <laughs> I should have known I wanted to be an artist, right? Um, but, like, I, yeah, I didn't I, – I, my parents – like, my mother is very, very, very creative, and my father is very, you know, smart and intellectual, and we always went to museums and theater and things, and he was always – he still is always reading about things and is very interested in the thinking and the process behind something, but he was never a visual person, really, um, and so it wasn't, I didn't have any role models for what it meant to be an artist, really. Like, I just, I didn't know anybody who was one and I didn't see anybody who was one. And I didn't know that that was something you could be as an adult. And I'm super lucky, like in comparison to some of my students whose parents just freak out when they decide they want to be art majors. Um, nobody in my family freaked out or told me I couldn't do it. I could tell they were a little worried about how I was going to make a living or what it, you know, what it looked like. They didn't know what it looked like either. Um, so yeah, I didn't know for sure. I just knew that in high school, I, I liked my art classes the best. There, there's something about, I think, you know, when you're a maker, you just kind of feel the most comfortable when you're making something, whatever that is. And so there was this, natural gravitation um but yeah I, I I was definitely not like I'm gonna be an artist and that's what I'm gonna do and yay right <laughs> this occurs to me and maybe it's totally off base but I do wonder whether um there's a gender thing here around because sort of the idea of of saying to your parents I want to be an artist whether especially sort of our generation I don't know uh, around it being 
safer or easier to make that announcement as a woman than it is as a man. Um, just because, I, I don't know, like the expectation that you're going to need to get out there and make a living is somewhat different. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that holds water at all? Oh, <laughs> wow. This is, this could be like a four-hour I know. Hour I do wonder. Um, I do think there are most certainly some gender issues. Um, there are there tend to be, I mean, I've been teaching for what, over 15 years, there are more women than men in my classes at this point in time. But I mean, you have to look and see, like, still the artists who are the most well known and who still garner the most attention are men. So yeah, I know. Okay, um, there is a lot there to unpack, which we yeah, won't go yeah. into. But there, yeah. but but um, I think it's become easier now to make a living, no matter what, um, sure. as an artist. And so, perhaps that's going to change. Um, I hope so. But um, all right. So you did go to art school and um, for undergrad. And did you um, did you work after art school before going to graduate school? Yes. For five years, about. Okay. Yeah. I what what some... kind of work did you do? Um, so the first thing I did was wait tables um, because I needed to make money and I needed, I wanted to have time to try and make art. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is when you're in school, you have deadlines and you have a community and you're really motivated and you have classes and you have lots of reasons to make art. And then the second you're out of school, there's absolutely no one saying, Hey, when are you making your next painting or your next, whatever? (laughs) Nobody is asking you for anything. And it's, it's really, really hard to do that. Um, and so I tried to set up a studio in my apartment and I wanted to work, you know, something where I had some hours free to try and get work done and figure that all out. And so, yeah, I waited tables and then, um, a few of my professors actually let me know that there was a job opening at an art gallery in San Francisco and I had interned at a gallery in San Francisco. So I had a little bit of experience working in a gallery. And so I applied for a job and I got this job, um, at an art gallery, which was really thrilling. Cause it was like, Hey, look, I got a job in my field right? <laughs> without a master's and, you know, <laughs> like, yay. Um, and that was actually one of the best things that ever happened because then I was exposed to not only professors who were working artists and making a living, but this whole stable of, artists and you know I got to learn about the business side of things which was really helpful and has helped me throughout you know my entire career and I just got to see all these different artists who made an incredible variety of work and I got to visit their studios often and ask them questions and you know as like a bright-eyed let's see how old was I 18 19 20 21 22 I was like 23 23 24 year old you know being able to interact with artists twice my age who were patient and generous and very giving with their own life experience and knowledge. Um, it was really eye-opening and really great. Can, can you remember some of the things that you learned either about kind of the business side of, you know, working in a gallery or from some of those studio visits, some, some of the nuggets of wisdom that was passed on to you through interacting with those artists during that time period that you sort of still hang on to? 
Oh, business wise. I mean, the woman I worked for was incredibly frugal. Um, and she also did not come from a lot of money. So she really, um, she was the first woman gallery owner in the Bay area. I think she opened her gallery in like 61 or six. Yeah. Something, you know, in the sixties. Um, and so just watching a woman run a business, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was incredibly influential. Um, I think like I learned a lot about pricing and I learned a lot about sort of how people purchase artwork and what decisions were go into that. And, you know, some of it was wonderful, like when collectors really just loved a piece and wanted it to live with it for the rest of their life. That was great. But then there were also people who wanted, you know, a perfectly square painting to go over their green sofa and and it had to match. <laughs> there were right. all these other deciding factors. Right. And even though that was unpleasant, it was really good to learn about that um, and to be exposed to that. Um, and I think just in terms of nuggets of wisdom from artists, I, I think it was really subtle. I mean, I'm, I know people said things that stuck with me. I just can't, you know, recall any of them word for word at the moment, but it was mostly just about the way these artists went about setting up their lives. So some of them taught, some of them had day jobs, some of them didn't, some of them had huge studios, some of them had teeny studios, um, you know, just kind of seeing a lot of different routines um, really helped me figure out what I wanted or what I needed or what was possible. Um, and sort of like long-term goals, like, okay, so I have a studio in my house, but then this person is able to have the, you know, this warehouse space or this person uses their garage or this person, you know, found some equipment that, you know, school didn't want anymore and was able to purchase it that way. Just kind of all these little things that you, you don't really know, right? So watching people do that was really important and helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how it's almost like you need art school part two. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, I used to teach the professional practice class at San Francisco State and at other places um, and I actually did an online version for creative bug and I feel like it's one of the most important things that was missing from my own education there was no professional practice class when I was in school as an undergrad um, and it's just really important I think especially in arts because it's not like you know and I don't I don't mean to make it sound easy for other career paths, because it's certainly not easy to become a doctor, except that you have a path, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to get my degree and then I'm going to go get my graduate degree and then I'm going to go, you know, be an attendee or, you know, whatever it is. Like there are, there's just a path that's very straightforward and sure you can go in one direction, you can be a surgeon or you can be a pediatrician, but it's pretty clear what you need to do in order to get from A to Z. And with artists, that's just not true at all. There is no one path. There's no correct way. There's no, if you do these things, this will happen. I mean, for some people, if they do those things, that will happen. And for other people, it won't. And so just being clear about that and understanding and having your eyes open when you get into it, I've think is really, really, really important. Yeah. And as you said, you know, graduation comes one day on a Thursday and then on Friday, 
you're done. And then it's like, what do you do on Friday? Like it's, you know, you, you have this degree and, and then it's like, you're an artist. It's like, well, how do you structure the day? Like where, where are you supposed to work and for whom and, and what are you supposed to make and with what equipment? And, um, so what is, what is the content of that class that you, what, what was the name of the class? The sort of professional practice is that what it's yeah, called what, so what is that class um either the one that you you have for creative bug or the one that you teach at the college level like what what is the curriculum for a class like that so I mean when I did it at the college level we had 15 weeks um and so every day was like a different topic so like I did a day on portfolio building and people had to do presentations and then we did really nitty gritty stuff like taxes and getting a business license. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then we did a lot of theoretical stuff. Like what does it mean to be an artist, um, in the world, you know, because our society, like, I think one of the things that's really challenging is that a lot of artists are told, or a lot of people who are getting art degrees are like, what are you going to do with that? Right. Everybody, asks you, what are you going to do with that degree? And even though like English majors and other people get that question too, I feel like it's even more challenging for an artist to answer that question again, because it's like, well, you could be a graphic designer, you could be a game designer, you could be a fine artist, you can be an illustrator, you could do medical illustrations. Like there's just so many different places you can go. And so part of what I really wanted to do was give people a space to talk about that. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Stephanie Hackney from Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Stephanie Hackney, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Well, rather than doing the normal marketing spiel that most of you are used to hearing, we thought we would do a really quick rapid-fire Q&A about the best type of batting for each type of quilt. Sounds good. So can you tell me the best type of batting for show quilts? Sure. So for a show quilt, it would be wool, and that's because wool doesn't have a memory for creases, and it'll really emphasize your piecing and your stitching. Super. And what about for art quilts? For art quilts, you need to focus on small pieces generally, so we recommend silk because it'll hang real straight and really show off the tiny pieces and stitching. And for charity quilts? That would be our 80-20, and that's because it's a very stable batting and you don't have to worry about care. It'll take a lot of use and abuse, and it's great when you don't know who's going to be getting the quilt. And finally, the best batting for t-shirt quilts. And for t-shirt quilts, we recommend Thermor, and that's because it's lightweight, so it doesn't add any weight to an already heavy quilt. It doesn't shrink, so your t-shirt panels stay nice and flat, and you can stitch up to 10 inches apart so you don't have to actually stitch through the t-shirt design. Awesome. And if people want to go and you have a chance to win a collection of Hobbs batting and crafting products, they should send you an email, right? And what is that email address? Correct. The email is shackney, S is in Stephanie. H-A-C-K-N-E-Y at HobbsBondedFibers.com. And that's H-O-B-B-S-B-O-N-D-E-D-F-I-B-E-R-S.com. Awesome. And they should definitely check out Hobbs Batting on Instagram as well. 
Exactly. We uh, run giveaways all the time there, and if they don't happen to win in this one, they have any of other opportunities on Instagram. Okay, super. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And now, back to my conversation with Lisa. So yeah, there's that and then like applying to grad school and do you need to go to grad school? Because that's a whole other question and like what are residencies and what kind of exhibition opportunities are there and like how do you make a studio and do you share a studio and how do you framework and how do you install work? Because, you know, there's like all these secret little measurements like, you know, that people need to know or understand or like um, just even hardware, like what's a D-ring and how does that work? Yeah, I will say like, I had no, you know, I have none of that training at all. I didn't go to art school or anything, but I um, used to make soft sculpture and um, I had a show in Atlanta and I would say that was probably my most sort of significant show uh, ever since like I sort of stopped making soft sculpture not too long after that. And anyway, it was with an artist. We had a show together. So he made um, uh, like illustrations that were framed and were on the wall and paintings and I mm-hmm. made soft sculpture and they were all a bird. So it was like a thematic show. And I flew down to Atlanta and we installed the show together. Thank God he was there because he had gone to art school <laughs> and he actually knew what he was doing. So we in, we came into install together and he like built shelves and like knew like for my soft school I mean he like installed my show and essentially like but I had no idea I don't know what I was thinking like how are we gonna put these things up I don't know but he like had an understanding like intuitively of how to put our work together and make it one cohesive whole in a day Um, and it looked amazing but you know, there's a lot that goes into it. It's a lot more than just making the work is what I would say. It is a lot more than just making the work. And like some of that you learn, you know, if you're out of school where they have you do an exhibition, you'll learn that when you're doing the exhibition. But if you're out of school that doesn't have an exhibition space for their students and you never do that, then you won't learn it. Right. Like, so it's, it's even a very sort of interesting thing. Some people learn that in art school and some people don't. Some people have to learn it outside of art school. Um, and yeah, like even things like copyright, which is like really confusing and like the biggest headache, but you know, you have to at least, I feel like it's your job as an artist to, to have at least a minimal amount of understanding of all these things (laughs) so that when you, you know, sell a piece of work, you understand that you still retain the copyright, even if somebody else owns the piece. Um, you know, that's something that some people just don't even know. And that's important to know. Absolutely. Yeah. And same thing with having your piece photographed and like who owns the photos and what kind of rights. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. Yes. And especially to when you're marketing those things online and then what happens when somebody takes that, takes your photos and um, how can you protect yourself? I mean, there's just a lot. Um, So that's great that you teach that class. That's heartening to hear that that class exists and then people are taking it. And I hope it's part of more and more, um, you know, uh, curriculum for uh, art degrees because it's certainly something that people need. Um, So how did you, so you went to graduate school and I'm wondering, um, and and what was your focus in graduate school? So I entered into grad school as a painter. Um, Mills is a really small program. There's like maybe 
15 people maximum per year, I think. It's, it's really small. Um, but they're also not, like you come in under a media, but you're not media specific once you get there. Um, and so, you know, they just, at grad school, I feel like is like a intense meat grinder situation. You get put into this environment and, and the goal is to just really make you focus and change and try a bunch of new things and think outside the box and, and just really solidify kind of who you are or want to be as an artist. Um, you might change again once you get out of grad school, but I just feel like the whole process is incredibly intense and it was really worthwhile for me. Um, in that even though I was working in a gallery and I was starting to make my own work, I still didn't really define myself as an artist. I, I got to this point, you know, working in, in, I worked for one gallery first and then I worked for a private dealer, more of a private dealer slash gallery space. Um, but it was a smaller and kind of different operation, which was great. I got kind of two different sides of the business side of the art world. Um, but I realized that I was either like going to continue to be on this track where I was selling other artists artwork and it, in some ways it was incredibly rewarding, but then that icky side of we need a 48 by 48 green painting to match our green sofa was just starting to grind me down. And I had to make a choice if I was going to be a dealer or an artist. And I thought, well, grad school might help me make that choice. And it, and it did. Um, and so I applied and was fortunate enough to get in because it is really hard to get into grad school. Um, yeah. And then I ended up at Mills and they just pushed me to try a bunch of different things and in the process of trying a bunch of different things one of which I, I I feel like and I do it too as a teacher you just push your students to do something that seems completely out of left field because you just want them to be uncomfortable because usually out of that discomfort something really magical happens so they kept telling me to do video they were like make videos and I was like I don't want to do videos and like well you should try video and I was like I really don't want to make video <laughs> And so in the process of trying to fulfill their impetus to try something new, I was like, okay, I'm going to embroider because I was, you know, thinking about my grandmother and thinking, oh, you know, what did she used to do? And I had already kind of incorporated like some sort of crafty textile. I was using um, dressmaking patterns in my, in my paintings as kind of like a backdrop to work with because I had done some costume design. Um, so I started embroidering and that was sort of, and that finally got them to stop talking to me about video. <laughs> He's like, yes. Embroidery shut them up, you know. Yeah. Um, and so like I read the subversive stitch um, and I really started diving into kind of the conceptual side of embroidery and what it meant to be an embroiderer in, well, at the, let's see, was it the 21st century? It was in the 21st century, what it meant to be an embroiderer in the 21st century. Um, and yeah, and so, and that just kind of stuck. And so I've used embroidery ever since, really. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about. Yeah. It's in all, um, a lot of your work. I'm, I mean, mm -hmm. almost all of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, which is interesting and definitely helped, uh, bridges the gap between art and craft too, which, um, which we'll talk yeah. about. So, um, and then did you begin teaching at the university level sort of right after that? Yeah, I was super lucky. Um, one of my former professors, Catherine Sherwood, who was a mentor and then became a colleague and slash friend, um, you know, part of the thing that I also wanted to do in grad school was figure out if I wanted to teach. I thought I wanted to teach, but I wasn't sure, you know, 
teaching is a whole other beast. And um, I TA'd a couple classes and I realized that I did like the idea of teaching and I thought teaching would be a good day job for me in terms of trying to find a way to, you know, make a living and make work. And she um, was very fortunately in charge of picking the teachers for UC Berkeley summer school program. And so she gave me my first teaching job. Um, and she was so wise and was like, once you get the first one, the other ones were follow. It's just really hard to get that first one. Wow. Um, and sh she was right. Um, and so I taught at summer school at UC Berkeley for a few summers. And then also one of my professors at Mills was taking a sabbatical. And so she had me um, teach her class, one of her classes for her for one semester while she was gone. And so that was a really an amazing, generous opportunity. Um, and then luckily I fell into some other adjunct teaching gigs. Um, and it was kind of like dominoes falling. Once you get one, then you kind of get another and then you get another. And then it's definitely, um, not an easy task. And so I caution my own students about, you know, how incredibly lucky I was and that it's not typical for it to be that easy. And it's a lot easier if you're willing to move. And I wasn't willing to move because my husband and I had already bought our house. And so I was like, I couldn't go to Ohio for a teaching opportunity if I wanted to. It just was too complicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all came into play for me. And do you feel like teaching is a good balance for you as far as maintaining your own art practice? I mean, is it hard to carve out time for you to still make art? Is it taxing? I mean, I used to be a sixth grade teacher and granted very different population than college yes, students. Sixth grade. But yeah, um, yeah different, a whole different ballgame. But at the same yeah. time, I do know from that experience, and I, you know, I only did it for four years, so it wasn't all that long. Um, you've mm -hmm. been doing this for much longer, but, um, but I do know from that experience, like you're on your feet all day, you're talking all the time yeah. and, yeah. um, it's a lot, like you're giving a lot. And at the end of the day, I was like wiped. Like I would just like mm -hmm. sit in like an isolation booth. Like I would just be like on my couch, completely silent. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a fairly introverted person and mm -hmm. need a mm -hmm. lot of time like to recover from experiences like that. And so mm -hmm. it was very draining. I don't know if you find it that way or if you find it sort of, you know, it, it I, I, if it like builds you up or if it sort of get, makes you sort of tired out. It's both. Um, it's both. I'm, I'm an extroverted introvert for sure. <laughs> Um, so I can turn it on and teaching is definitely a performance. Like you are in front of a group of people, you're trying to navigate a room, you're trying to figure out what people's needs are. Everybody's needs, especially in an art class are incredibly idiosyncratic. Um, and so trying to navigate all of that is really challenging. Definitely the first couple weeks back in the semester, um, like, my daughter jokes that like I get home and I don't talk and I just kind of like I do literally collapse on the couch and if anybody needs anything from me it's kind of like a grunt and a point of, right like, uh, over there mm -hmm. <laughs> like, uh, leave me alone for five minutes <laughs> like I need to decompress but um I also find it incredibly invigorating um and you know when you have really good students and really enthusiastic students it's just like the cherry on top of an amazing Sunday um and 
the thing that I think I love the most is that it forces me to think on my toes um, because you never know what students are going to bring in in terms of their own work and trying to kind of workshop through their difficulties and trying to remember what it felt like to be, you know, 19 or 20 and trying to make mature artwork and, you know, figuring out what it is that your voice is and what materials you should use and how to use those materials and like, you know, realizing that, oh, watercolor is not for me or charcoal is for me or, you know, whatever that is, is both fear generating and incredibly exciting and exhilarating at the same time. And so watching that, like watching light bulb moments and watching people like really get contour drawing for the first time is just always a thrill. Like it's just, it really moves me to see people that engaged um, and it keeps me engaged too like I have to know what's happening at SFMOMA or you know what's up at the Whitney or what's being talked about because we have to talk about it in the classroom because part of your job as an artist is to understand you know contemporarily what's happening around you and so I feel like they need exposure and thus I need exposure and that's a really good thing for me because I could easily just be like I'm just gonna hide in my studio and make things all day and not interact with anybody else which on the one hand is really important but on the other hand is not really realistic and doesn't actually like fuel your practice and so when do you make your own work? I know your grandmother, and this is, it, I think this is your father's mother, the one who was really crafty, yeah. Um, yeah. left you some money when she yeah. was dying. Um, yeah. This seems like such an incredible gift. So she told you to take this little, you know, pot of money that she had for you and to build yourself an art studio in your backyard because yeah. that would make it so that you would have a place that was really convenient where you could go whenever you wanted or needed to and make art. And yeah. I just yeah, yeah. thought, what an incredible thing. And there's, yeah. um, hopefully we can share a picture of it in the show notes because it's also For a sure. super cool building. Yeah, it is a cool building. Um, my friend John Reardon, who's an architect, he offered to draw the plans up for me as like a portfolio piece for himself. So it's a custom building. It's it you know was really challenging. I was pregnant while it was being built. My daughter came six weeks early, and so they were finishing it while I was still in the hospital. And my husband was going to kill me for all the drama that was going on. <laughs> Um, but yeah, my grandmother, um, I was pregnant at the time I had told everyone in my family I was pregnant and she had lung cancer and, you know, um, she was a very Jewish grandmother. We would go out to lunch when I would visit. And so she sat me down at this lunch before she was really sick. And she said, I'm leaving you this money. And, you know, it was very funny. She was very Jewish grandma. You could do whatever you want with it. You can save it. You can buy a car. You can go on a trip to Europe. You can use it for private school for your kids. Like you could do whatever you want. But I think <laughs> that you should build a studio in your backyard. <laughs> And, you know, she had always been so supportive of my art making and always asked really good questions about what I was making it and when I would explain to her sort of the process and the reasoning and um, the conceptual side of what I was doing and why I was doing it, she was fascinated and riveted and we would have, you know, long discussions about like, 
you know, why is Richard Serra just making a circle out of lead on a piece of paper? And like, what is the significance of that? And, you know, she was one of the only people who I could have those kinds of conversations with. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to build this studio. And she was so right. She was, she told me, you're going to have this baby and you have no idea what it's going to be like. Like no one can prepare you for what it's like to be a mom and you cannot stop making art. Like you just can't. And if you, she's like, even though your studio is only five minutes away, if you have to pack up and go there and find care for your child and like, you're just not going to do it. Like it's going to be too hard. So you need something that's like right outside your door. Um, and she was brilliant and correct. And I'm sitting right now in the studio <laughs> that she built me. Oh, what was um, her, what was her name? Shirley, Shirley Solomon. Oh, thank you, Shirley. What a beautiful gift. She was yeah. right. That's wonderful. So yeah. um, that's such a, such a, I don't know, just like really touching. <laughs> she was totally right. So, yeah. um, so, so you make um, art in the studio and do you work, do you have days off from your job? Yeah. Or? yeah. So I'm a part-time professor okay. so I only teach students a week and I am you know this is one of the things that I think I mention in the professional practice class all the time is you really have to get good at scheduling like you know people think that like being an artist is sitting around waiting for inspiration but that's really like five percent of it like you know I want to say like 60 to 80 percent is just discipline and it's just like going to work even if you don't feel like it or understanding that like even if you're not inspired something good can happen if you just actually start working um and so yeah I'm very guarded like I try and keep two days a week full to full whole days to only work in the studio um, and then, you know, a lot of my work is portable, so, like, uh, I can bring it in at the end of the day and, like, sit with my kid while she's doing homework or reading or watching TV or whatever, and I can be working on something, and she could be working on something, or, you know, obviously, with technology today, like, I can answer an email on my phone while she's, you know, drawing next to me, um, but I really try and keep two full days in the studio to work. That doesn't always happen. I mean, I break my own rules, but I really try. It's like, I try and schedule you know, coffee with friends or to go see the show at SF MoMA or whatever it is that I'm going to do, run errands um, on a weekday instead of on the weekend so things aren't so crowded. I try and do that one day. And then the other two days are fully, fully studio days. And then the weekend is hopefully family oriented. <laughs> nice. I like your life. This, that sounds, this sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you have to be intentional because if it's, if you're not, it all gets away from you. So, um, I think that's, that's smart. And, um, and I also feel like you are a fine artist who has been a participant in the indie craft movement for a really long time, which is interesting too. And, um, I mean, you started a blog, was it in 2004? Something like that. Somewhere yeah, right. around then. Yeah, yeah. when everybody's doing blogs. <laughs> right. And I started mine in 2005, so just a little bit yeah. after you. And yeah. you, as we mentioned, you have this class on Creative Bug and another class about um, acrylic painting. Um, yep. Classes I have on. acrylic painting class. I have a sashiko class, a stitching class. Um, there's two acrylic painting classes. I have a couple of daily challenges. Um just, I think later this year, they're going to release a paint making class that I filmed earlier this summer. So I do, I do a lot of stuff with Creative Bug. They're great. Yeah. 
And um, and then you've also written quite a few books that are, you know, aimed at the mass market artists. They're not, you know, um, books for academia. They are books right. for regular people that you can buy at Barnes and Noble or you know, <laughs> for, for people, regular who, people. <laughs> yeah, regular people who are just hobbyists is what I'm getting at, you know, not people who are, um, you know, in a graduate, um, you know, MFA program or whatever, but, right. but for people who are just sort of like the new book that you have out, which we should say is called a field guide to color, a watercolor workbook. And this is just for somebody who, you know, is interested in picking up watercolors and wants to learn more and wants to learn about color theory but maybe doesn't know anything about it or just want, you know, wants to, to explore. Um, yeah. And so yeah. what I, I guess what I'm getting at is that um, not a lot of people kind of bridge that gap between being a fine artist and a college professor and being a really like you've taught at craftcation right like right, right, right. yeah i love craftcation yeah. it's like a, it's like such a cool vacation of making and lovely lovely people and being like a really active participant in the indie craft movement and i just wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of your you have like a foot in both of those worlds right i i don't know i think it's pretty cool i don't i can't off the top of my head think of somebody who um who is so much in both worlds I guess that's interesting I mean I think it just goes back to so I talk a lot about being a hybrid I mean I'm literally culturally a hybrid like as my mother's my mother's Japanese my dad's Jewish Caucasian like I'm not really a practicing Jew but a lot of Jewish traditions I grew up around a lot of them um so my culture is really mixed my art practice is really mixed I'm always like fusing weird materials together I'm I've I've always been interested in why is there this divide between craft and art um you know my grandmother used to say oh well I'm not an artist because I'm just following a pattern and I would argue with her and say yes but you're choosing the colors and you're choosing the pattern and you're altering it where you see fit and you're inserting yourself into this. So you are an artist in a way. And she would, you know, never agree with me, but we would argue about it for hours. And and I think that it's my nature to just kind of straddle gaps, I guess. That sounds really awkward. I'm a gap straddler. Um, but I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, I love really beautifully well-made objects. I think in a way that's a very culturally Japanese traditional thing. Um, like, you know, when you go to Japan, like a tea bowl is beautiful and your wrapping from bringing something back from the store is beautiful. And everything is just really thought of the aesthetics of things. I, I, I loved going to Japan. I went um, a couple of years ago in December and it was right when everybody was buying their planners for the next year. And Japanese people still tend to buy paper planners and calendars. And there were just these hordes of people in the stationary section of this amazing craft department store. And they were touching each one and picking up the pen and picking out which paper they wanted and what size they wanted. And it was like, these are my people. <laughs> like I, and, and so I think that, you know, part of this craft art thing is like, why can't you do both? Like why? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, it's not that I think that making a painting is, is 
that different or I don't know it's like hard like yes a painting is different from a t-shirt but at the same time like really what makes it that different right I mean and and I think you know like Andy Warhol's a good example of that but I, I just I don't know. It's just something that really interests me. And I, and I think like, why buy an ugly t-shirt? So what goes into the making of a beautiful t-shirt and how is that really different than making, you know, or a thoughtful t-shirt and how is that different than making a beautiful or thoughtful painting? And, and I don't see that big of a difference. And I feel like blogs just, there were so many amazing craft oriented blogs and it was the same feeling. Like these are my people. Like like it was like this immediate filter of, oh my God, if we were sitting in a room together, we would probably order the same thing and talk for three hours. And just because I'm quote unquote, a fine artist, I can't have those conversations with people who are quote unquote crafters. Like what, why not? (laughs) Right. Yeah, totally. Okay. I think that that, that says it really well. Um, and, uh, and, and explains why, um, why you feel like, you know, writing these books um, fits with your overall sort of identity and as, as an artist and also as a business person. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about this book now um, okay. and how it came about. Um, your other books were with Quarry, right? And this book yeah. um, uh, is, the other ones were um, a drawing book. Um, and this one is a painting book. And I'm wondering, this yeah. one is published by Roost. How did you yes come to make this book did you have the idea for it that they come to you or oh, how did it originate so this book is definitely different than the Cory books the first book I did with Cory was embroidery and they came oh, to me right. they, they wanted an embroidery book and so I you know that was how that one worked and then we I did um yeah 20 ways to draw a chair and um, that was just fun because it was just illustration and not any writing. And then this book, so um, my friend Blair, who's Wisecraft, she came out with her book and it was beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, this book is gorgeous. And she said, well, if you ever want to do a book, you should talk to my editor. And um, I had actually, you know, recently had my kid and was thinking a lot about like parenting and making and like the the navigating of that. And that's a whole other ball game. Um, just kind of how do you stay creative and find time to make things when you have a child and, um, balance even more obligations and, and, you know, now you don't have, you know, the luxury of, you know, 12 hours in the studio anymore (laughs) and you're exhausted. And so I wanted, I really, I first wanted to write a book about that. Like I wanted to collect a bunch of essays from, creative parents and, and like do some writing and maybe make a workbook like to help people navigate parenting as a creative. And at the time there were not that many books. I feel like there's a few more books on that subject now, but at the time there were not that many books. And, and so Blair was like, talk to my editor. So she introduced us and I had this wonderful phone call, um, with Jennifer, that's my editor. And um, I who's, told her this. Who's been on this podcast, by the way. So people okay. want to go back to, um, yes, we have a, a um, podcast episode with um, with Roost. Um, so I don't, I don't exactly remember what uh, the, 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 the number, number it but is, it's, but it's back a little ways. It. Yes. 
And Ben was amazing and we hit it off right away. And she's like, that's a great book idea, but I honestly think you need to write it. And I was just like this wah, wah, wah happened in my head because I was not up for or felt like physically she able didn't, to She didn't want it book. to be a, a contributor book. She wanted it to be authored solely by you. She wanted it. Yes. She was like, I would love if it had contributors, like obviously do some interviews and insert them, but I really want you to write it. And I had no, like in my head, it fully existed as, you know, a book of essays and with me just doing like intros to each essay and, and me not writing. And so I was like, okay. And she's like, well, I still think you should do it. And I just, I couldn't wrap my head around that at all. And she said, well, if you have another idea, come back at me because, you know, this is a great idea and I definitely want to talk to you again. And so I was like, okay. And I was actually driving down to Craftcation when we were talking and I got to Craftcation and I taught my color theory class, which I had taught there a couple times before. And, um, it's just, it's such a fun class to do there. And everyone was so enthusiastic and they were like, Oh, well you have this embroidery book. Like why, what other books do you have? And all of a sudden in my head, I was like, I should do a color theory. Book. Isn't it so funny how <laughs> seriously. And I, and I, I would just say this as like the word of wisdom for anyone listening is like, so often the best idea is literally right in front of your face. Totally. And it is so hard to see though. Yeah. And, and yep. it's so it's like, for whatever reason, the thing that is the most obvious is the one that you can, literally can't see. Um, I know, it's true. And I don't know why, but um, but I, that has happened to me time and time again. Whether it's a yeah. blo- like uh, sometimes I'll be so struggling to find a blog post, and I'm like, what should I write about? I can't think of anything to write about. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh wait, this thing right here on my desk—that's what I should write about. Right, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say the thing that's at the top of the pile on your desk. Yeah, you're like, oh wait, obviously that's what it's. Yes, but yeah, it can so be such a struggle. So It's so true. I think, I mean, part of it is I think so many artists and, and maybe again, this is a gender thing, but we don't have to unpack that. So many women, um, don't want to give themselves credit for what it is that they're good for or, you know, good at, and they don't, and you just don't see it. And I think you're also like a lot of artists are really self-critical. Um, and like, even those of us that maybe don't seem that way, like, Every artist I know is basically wringing their hands in their studio, at least for part of the time. I I know, I don't know a single artist who's like, oh, that's genius. I'm done. (laughs) Like everyone's like, oh God, I don't know. Is that okay? Like, does it need more? Does it need less? Should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? Does it need red? Does it need orange? You know, like it's just none of us, I feel like are, are, so egotistical that it's just like yes everything I touch is gold um so yeah I think it is it's you don't see it so anyways that's what happened and then I saw it and then I was like color theory yes and so then I wrote up chapters um and I had actually started my um color meditation practice at that point and so then I thought oh my god and anytime I posted one of those people were like you know, in the beginning, they were like, what is that? What are you doing? And I would try and explain it. And then I, I actually ended up doing like a summer workshop with the Palo Alto Art Center um, with teenagers in the color meditation practice. And I ended up realizing how important that was, not only for me, but the potential for other people. And then I thought, okay, 
this should just all be in the book. Like it should be part color theory, part really fun, playful, like workshop, get yourself out of whatever zone that you're in. And I explained that all to Jen and she immediately was like, yes, yes, yes. And like understood that the book had to be nice paper. And I mean, she just, it was amazing. It was like synergy. It was just like, this is what needs to happen. And I was like, yes, that's what needs to happen. And And so it just, there yeah yeah and it's really lovely because um and people will see this when they pick up a copy but on one side of a lot of the pages is uh like a color meditation so it'll be like a little um kind of an exercise and a little sample and then on the right side is a place for you to do your own kind of you know try it out kind of practicing and so the the book itself is printed on this sort of thick watercolor type paper so that you can actually go in here with a brush and your own watercolors and paint and it's not going to bleed through to the other side or make a mess of the book and you know the book might wrinkle a little bit or something like that but um but there's lots and lots of room in here for you to paint and try everything out and you know really use it as a workbook uh, and I hope people do I mean we have a caveat in the beginning that talks about how you know this is the best paper that we could afford without making this book cost like a hundred (laughs) dollars because like you just can't put real watercolor paper in a book unless you, you know, have millions and gazillions of dollars to spend, but it will hold up. Um, you know, and I, I really like, I know some people are going to be like, I want to keep my book pristine or they're going to want to do it more than once. And so they're going to, you know, Xerox it out or trace it out. And I think that's great, but I really, really hope that people also paint in it. I just, I want to see like, buckled worn sketchbook like copies of this book so if you get the book and you do that please 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 post a picture and tag me on instagram because i really want to see that like that would just make me so happy yeah no totally and it's 27.95 so it's not super expensive um and there's lots and lots of exercises in here so that you know you're going to get a lot for your money i think it's really beautiful and they're not um they're not like you know, overwhelming or very difficult. It's like, it's really color play. Um, so yes. you're, you're not going to be like, oh, but I, I've never done this before. I'm going to be, it's going to be too hard or, you know, I'm going to mess no. it up. Like, no, no, no. You're going to be able to do this um, and have a lot of fun with it. So I think it's it's really very cool. Um, so yeah, kudos to you. And, and I also love that the idea for this book transformed from being something completely different <laughs> to I being know, this right? one. That's a great story. Yeah, super. Yeah. Super cool. Um, yeah. So, and I want to talk a little bit about Chroma, which is this super cool piece of artwork that you made. And um, I remember putting a call out in my newsletter when you had a call out for people yeah, to yeah. send you um, pieces for it, which is why I wanted yeah. to circle back to it um, because it's it's finished now and, and installed. Um, so this is a... Uh, an installation piece that is made up of lots and lots of really tiny plastic objects organized by color. And so I'm wondering how the idea for it came about, how you went about collecting them and organizing them, like what the criteria was, what the overall idea was, just kind of the ins and outs, ins and outs of that piece. So um, the chroma installation is something that my color partner in crime, Christine Buckton Tillman, um, he is an artist who lives in Baltimore, and we met back um, in the day on Flickr. Yeah, Flickr. Some, I know. The, like, for, the pe- for the pre-Instagram folks totally. out there. Totally. To the ancient people who've been on the internet forever. <laughs> <laughs> Us old people. Um, and... 
we had a bunch of mutual artist friends and our work just her work spoke to me and you know and we just talked all the time and each had like a pretty intense drawing practice and we're trying to post all the time and hold each other accountable and we just always kind of in the back of our minds talked about doing something together and she actually came out to San Francisco with her husband on a visit and they came to San Francisco State for a minute and we met and kind of solidified the fact that we really wanted to do something and then this opportunity came up at a gallery in Baltimore called Gallery CA and so we just brainstormed about different ideas of what we wanted to do and we both you know we're constantly doing color wheels and you know ordering things by color and so we were like why don't we take people's junk like ugly you know what people think are ugly useless like bread ties and broken toys or dollhouse furniture or for the first one we accepted paper ephemera too um because that one was temporary um and just you know things and what if we just arranged it by color like just you know how big can we get and the gallery had a wall that was you know like 12 feet tall by like 24 feet wide and we just wanted to fill the wall with stuff and so we put the call out and luckily people like you and and some other friends who had great reach on the internet um helped us collect these things and people would send us literally boxes of what could be construed as trash (laughs) but it was colorful trash and then we would practice so every grouping that we got we would arrange kind of in a mini version of this chroma like on my desk or her desk and take a picture of it and shout out to the person who sent us sent us the stuff Um, and then Christine works at a school and so she put out buckets at school and so all the kids at school dumped all their broken toys and stuff in there too and we ended up with enough stuff to fill that wall Um, and then some and we just yeah arranged it in chromatic order and then we got the opportunity to do it again out here in San Francisco at Rare Device. Um, and then we got the opportunity to do a permanent version. So it lives um, in the apartment building at the Wharf, the new development at the Wharf in D.C. And we put it on Plexi and it's hanging above some elevators <laughs> and it's huge. It's like seven. I don't even know how many panels of like seven foot by four foot wide pieces of Plexi that you know, are just massive. Um, but it's such a fun, fun. I love the sense of collaboration, not only between Christine and I, but also between people of the world, because it really was people of the world. We had some stuff sent from Australia and Japan and France and all over the place, um, just kind of coming together to send us these things. And I really like the idea of, you know, taking these things out of the trash and making them really beautiful and just thinking about color and like we have all these phrases now that we use when we're setting up chroma like oh we need a transitional object because getting from pink to red like is actually kind of hard like trying to figure out like are you going you know dark at the bottom light at the top or light on the right and dark at the left like just kind of thinking about everything in terms of value and saturation and tints and shades and and getting things to look good next to each other it's a real exercise in like seeing um and it's just fun it's really really one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my art practice (laughs) wow yeah and it shows and it it definitely makes you see your trash in a new way and appreciate all the colors that are all around us all the time that we just, yeah. you know, 
dump in the recycling or just, you know, discard in like a junk drawer and we just don't even notice. But if you were to take all your kids' toys and dump them in the middle of the room and then just start organizing them in a different way, you could create something really beautiful. So Totally. I mean, yeah. And it's not only like toys are kind of like the fun, obvious choice, but it really is like bread ties and like beverage caps. Um, and like the netting that people use to like protect their fruit, like the netting that like tomatoes and lemons come in (laughs) and like pencils. And I mean, it's just really like once you start looking around you really carefully, it's like, wow, again, like people have thought about these objects and how to create them. And then, you know, do we take the time to really honor the thought behind the design of anything or are we just sort of glossing over it and not paying attention? Yeah. Totally. And when we organize them in a new way, we do pay attention. So that's beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, great. Um, All right. So I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. You have three things to recommend. Um, One of them is um, you say you have a new iPad draw on with a paper sticker film and the the sketchbook app and stylus. So what is that? What is this? What does that mean? A paper sticker film? Well, there's shout out to Courtney Cerruti, who I think would shout out Amy Carroll. So we're going like, and if you want to go back in the blog days, that would be Angry Chicken. Yes, and she's been on this podcast, by the way. You can go back and listen to Amy Carroll's episode. I'm just like a walking advertisement for all your private All my guests. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could, we should talk about Jen Hewitt too. But anyway, so um, I got a new iPad and I have always sort of wanted to like digital art, but just always go back to pen and paper and scanning and, you know, um, but I, I just, I wanted a way to, to be able to get things faster into a digital environment. And um, so I thought I would experiment with drawing on it. And I have um, like a 53 old stylus that somebody had given to me a while ago and I didn't splurge for the apple pen I got an apple pen knockoff um, because I wasn't sure I was gonna like it and I didn't want to spend a hundred dollars on something I wasn't sure I wasn't gonna like Um, and I just started experimenting and I was still kind of like oh but it's so weird drawing on glass and I was talking to Courtney about it and she was like oh Amy told me about this film that you put on and it makes the glass feel like paper um, oh. and she was like, order it. And I was like, okay. And so I went on Amazon and, um, you have to get the one that's the right size for your iPad. So that's like my one thing is like, you know, if you're looking for one of these and, and I can send you a link to the one that I got. So maybe listeners can see my example and then find yeah. the one that will fit theirs. Um, but it has changed my opinion. It doesn't feel like glass anymore. Um, it's not. It's still not paper. It doesn't feel the same as pen on paper, but it, it makes it a lot easier because there's like a texture and, and you're not, I don't know. I just felt like I was fighting the glass or like the stylus would slip and then some mark would erase. And I'd be like, I don't understand why that erased or why that didn't work. And that's not happening so much anymore. And then the sketchbook app is just a free app. Um, it's really similar to procreate. And again, I was like, I don't want to spend $10 if I'm not sure I want to do this yet. You would think I would just spend the $10, but that's, 
you know, that's me. Um, so the sketchbook app is, app is free and it's really fun and they keep prompting you to create an account, but you don't have to, you can X out of that and you can save all your things and you can work in layers and you can video record while you're drawing. So, you know, cause sometimes I've seen people do those cool little, like, here's how I draw this. And I'm like, how do they do that? Well, now I know how, cause there's a little video button and you can just tape yourself recording while you draw. And there's so many different brushes and tools now. Like none of these existed when I start when I first tried doing this. Like again, back in the day with a Wacom tablet and, and all, all that stuff. Um, so it's been really fun, and I've just been trying to like practice and get into the mode of you know. I, I don't think I'm ever gonna give up paper and pencil completely, but. If you're traveling and you really only want to take like a teeny tiny bag and like if you're like me and you're packing a sketchbook, I bring the sketchbook and like two watercolor sets and three different brushes and five different pencils. And the next thing you know, you have like a 20 pound bag. Like if you're just going to bring the iPad, like you can draw and you can take notes and you could do all this stuff. And I find that kind of liberating. And also because you can like undo, which you can't really do in real life. Um, and also because like saving is endless, right? Like it's not like a sketchbook where you're, oh, I'm on the last page and I'm going to be done. Like it's not like that, which is its own thing. And I really like that too, but this is different. Mm -hmm. So Okay, great. Yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and I love that paper sticker film. That's really, I've yeah. never heard of that. So good to know. I haven't either. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and I think it's probably having to do with um, the way your brain is trained, you know, that you're trained to have the texture of paper and if that's what you've been brought up on then you need the texture of paper and so this replicates that so it makes sense yeah. um yeah so okay um you wanted to recommend some watercolors I don't know how to pronounce this I think it's Mijilo? Mijilo? Yeah. I don't know how to say this. Um, so I don't know how to say it either because it's a Korean company okay so I'm, I don't know yes I'm not gonna even try like yeah, if it's supposed to be like the Spanish pronunciation, so it's Mihello, or if it is Mijello, or I don't know. Okay. I, I apologies to anyone who I am, you know, saying it wrong. your ears. While saying it's M I J. <laughs> it's M I J E L L O W. Yes. Um, and um, watercolors, mission, mission watercolors. Is there a W on that? I don't know if there's a W. We'll have to check. Okay. Um, but. They're these really cool kind of new to me watercolors that I found and I like them so much because they're two watercolors. Um, you know, there's a whole, you know, long conversation about pans versus tubes and um, I, I, I have lots of pan watercolors that I really like, but I didn't have a million tube watercolors that I like, but these are highly, highly pigmented. They're just... They have a beautiful like fluorescent pink and um, this like lime green that I'm always mixing to get, but they just have it out of the tube, which like saves me all this time. Um, they're just really, really, really beautiful. I really like them a lot. They're like my new favorite toy. Okay. No, no W. I just looked it up. Okay. Yeah. No W. <laughs> yeah. My typo. Okay. And then the last one are mochi muffins and donuts. Mochi, yeah. Oh, sorry, mochi, yeah. muffins and donuts. Yeah. So um, I love mochi. I've always loved mochi since I was a kid. Um, you, there's like this whole tradition where you eat it in the new year and my mom makes these incredible like sauces like there's an edamame and a walnut paste sauce that just thinking about it now I'm getting really hungry um but there's this 
bakery near me called Third Culture that makes mochi muffins. And so these are actually an amazing alternative if you're gluten-free because it's rice flour. It's not wheat flour. Um, and they're like kind of dense and kind of sticky. And they make donuts now too. And they make these incredible flavors like churro or Thai iced tea. <laughs> um, and and so I, I can't go very often because I want to eat all of them all the time. But I'm officially hooked, and I'm always like, oh, I'm kind of in the neighborhood. Maybe I could go get a mochi muffin. This seems like something I need to go to California to get because I live in Boston, and no, they don't have them here. <laughs> well, they might, um, and there are actually um, a bunch of mochi cake and other recipes online. So if you can't. Um, get to Third Culture Bakery in Berkeley, you can try and do it yourself mm. for sure. Um, and it's been on my list of things to try and make in the kitchen, which is very, very long and never seems to get any shorter. <laughs> um, but it's not that hard to find rice flour. Yes, I, ha- I actually have rice flour. So yeah. I have the flour and I can, I, I've made, I've made some things with that, but yeah. And then if you can get the Asian, the specific kind of rice flour, it's usually even a little sweeter than just plain rice flour. And so you're already like, you know, a quarter of the way there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yum. Okay. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, it was great. I love talking with you. Like we were talking about in the beginning how you know, all the blogs and like how we used to all check in with each other. And it's just nice to hear your voice. I know. (laughs) I know. We live in this virtual world. So every now and then we actually talk to each other and it's lovely when we do. So yeah. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Hopefully, you learned a bit about batting during our Q&A with Stephanie from Hobbs. There really is so much to learn about batting. Don't forget to check out this episode's blog post for all the details on receiving the handy batting reference tool Stephanie mentioned and for your chance to win. Thank you so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.